There are real issues in Judaism, as you know, we speak about all the time. I feel that if men are going to be part of a conversation about a woman's experience in Judaism, that they should be listening a lot more than they're speaking and they should offer to be part of the solution. She's choking. She feels she can't get out. She feels she can't loosen restrictions because it's either all or nothing. And they speak about that in the show, all or nothing. So my point about men speaking is you don't experience it. And it bothers me tremendously as a person, as a woman, as an activist, for men to be out there saying, this isn't true. I just kind of feel like I wouldn't put myself in a, in a, in a conversation where I didn't have the experience. So I don't understand people who do that. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The Netflix reality show, My Unorthodox Life, has been the talk of much of the Orthodox world since it was released less than two weeks ago. It tells the story of Julia Hart, who first developed a shoe line and quickly rose in the world of fashion. She is now the CEO and co-owner of Elite World Group, the world's largest modeling network. As most of you probably know, the reason her story is different from others is that Julia was an Orthodox Jew living in Muncie named Talia Hendler. She had once been a teacher of Torah in an Orthodox high school in Atlanta. About eight years ago, she left her husband and Orthodoxy itself just days after her daughter's wedding. Orthodox Jews have had varied reactions to the series, from complete rejection of Julia's honesty and experience, to countering her story of oppression with stories of loving being Orthodox under the hashtag MyOrthodoxLife, to accepting and even celebrating Julia's journey. In today's Orthodox Conundrum podcast, I speak to Tali Rosenbaum and Gordon and Shoshana Keats-Jaskal to get their reactions to the series. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or, alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. It was an honor to speak with my co-host from Intimate Judaism, Tali Rosenbaum, and the two hosts of the Chochmat Nashim podcast, Shoshana Keats-Jaskal and Ann Gordon, to hear what they think about the issues that arise from my unorthodox life. Me? As I expressed repeatedly on the podcast, I made an active decision not to watch the show, and I explained my reason towards the end. Because of that, I cannot comment about the series per se, or about the way that it portrays Julia Hart. Even if I did watch... I certainly would never say that she did not experience what she says that she did, or that her emotions were false. And similarly, we're under no obligation to accept them as objective truth either. Her experiences are, by definition, subjective, and turning that into more than that is also false. I won't reject that she felt the way she said she felt, but I also won't say that she's giving an absolutely objectively true picture. Nonetheless, talking about the show and reading about the show and delving into the issues that the show raises left me with a profound feeling of sadness. Here is someone who, as far as I can tell, was a popular and passionate teacher of Torah, who for various reasons utterly rejected a major part of who she was, going in a completely different direction, 
I'm not judging her. I'm not suggesting that she should have continued to spend her entire life in a state of suicidal depression. But to throw away something that is so precious to so many of us, up to the point that she married a non-Jewish man and encourages her children to leave religiosity as well, with a lot of success, by the way, seems to me to be fundamentally tragic. That doesn't lessen our obligation to learn lessons from her story. Maybe in that way something positive might emerge. But certainly in the short term, my unorthodox life leaves me feeling empty, and it gives me no inclination to look at Julia Hart as some sort of role model. Tali Rosenbaum and Gordon and Shoshana Keith Jaskol, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having us. Morning. So we're going to be speaking about My Unorthodox Life, a show or series which I have not watched, and I don't plan on watching it. That's a different topic. Perhaps I'll say why later on. But at the moment, just know I'm coming in here intentionally not having seen it. I want to hear from each of you your initial impressions. And then once I hear that, we can then have a discussion about our takeaways from the show. So, Anne, why don't we start with you? What are your initial impressions and perhaps initial takeaways from the show? What did you get when watching this? Okay, so my initial impressions, I think, were long before I did decide to watch the show. I decided to watch it so that I could hopefully talk intelligently about it in a forum such as this um, and be able to respond. You know, as part of Chochmat Nashim, I felt a little bit of an obligation. Left to my own devices, reality TV is not my cup of tea. So... You don't say. (laughs) Right. So I know it's a big shock. So, So my initial impressions were probably about my initial impressions about the show predated my watching of the show because there was so much buzz. And my biggest concern at that time was, I think, what I would call the technical inaccuracies that people were a little bit frustrated, including me, at the conflation of of communities within the Orthodox world. There are Hasidim and there are Haredim who are not Hasidim and there are Orthodox people who are not Haredim or Hasidim, which I think we all can count ourselves. So I feel like the way the buzz came out in advance, you know, from the trailer and from articles that came out where Julia Hart was quoted as saying some really extreme things, which do in fact take place in certain segments of the Orthodox world, that is true. But from people who actually knew her and and had her as a teacher and things like that, it seemed not to be the world that she herself was coming from. So I'm not talking about her emotional truth. I'm talking about the Simply the the facts on the ground, you know, was she allowed to drive? Do people in her the community in which she was raising her children when she was raising them Orthodox, were they allowed to ride a bicycle? Things like this, which are, it's a little bit hard to say it's incontrovertible, but the, the word on the street is that she was coming from a much more modern experience, not not the modern Orthodox world, but a more modern experience in that level of extremity. So that was where I was coming in. You know, I, I was curious to see to what extent these extreme statements were being made and, and not quite accurate. And then, of course, my my real initial impression in terms of actually beginning to watch, it's glamorous and isn't that going to be fun? And then I was truly, honestly, very disappointed in the fashion, which made it harder to watch, which might not be what you would ex- expect me to say, but that is true. Um, and then there's the reality TV aspect of it. It's clearly scripted. It's clearly, you know, designed to to hit certain buttons that I don't even know about because I've never seen the other shows that are it is like. I, I don't know if that works for an initial impression of the show, but that's where I was coming from. I did watch all of it in fairly rapid um, succession because I wanted to. I wanted to be done with it, right? I wanted to be able to be here today and say, I have watched the entirety of it. And hopefully I remember it well enough because it was fast. Thank you, Anne. Shoshana, how about you? I think when you're talking about the show, you have to, what are we talking about? Right? Are you talking about the Netflix series as it was presented as a single entity of a show, right? Reality TV. And like Anne, reality TV is not my thing. I didn't even watch Jersey Shore and I'm from Jersey. I just don't, I just, don't. I'm not into it. So again, like Anne, I don't have that genre background, but I think there's the television aspect of it, entertainment, excitement, whatever. And there was, I have to say, I, I did watch the whole thing again, because like Anne, and unlike many, many people commenting on it, I watched the whole thing because I decided I can't comment on it unless I do that. I know that's an unpopular opinion these days, but, <laughs> um, but I felt that was important. So I did watch the whole thing and anyone who got to the end, would actually see a lot of satisfaction in the way the personal relationships developed, not only 
of Julia and her family and her ex-husband and his new wife or fiance um, and the way the family was sitting around the table together and respecting everyone um, to even other, other characters who had beautifully emotional moments that I don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, but there is depth. Okay. I just want to say that there is some depth. There is exploration of human relationships and Tali maybe can speak more about that. Um, so actually I think there was, is some value in watching the whole thing and seeing how people get along and, and, and develop their relationships despite being so different. That's, that's the show. Mm-hmm. Then okay. there is, you know, people take a lot of um, issue with Julia herself, like Anne mentioned, without having to repeat what she said, but just that, you know, she's not necessarily from fundamentalist thing and, and how could she, you know, we don't understand how she could speak this way when she wasn't. But really that bothers me so much. And we'll talk about it probably a little bit later. This is just my initial impressions because a Netflix spliced. You could even tell, I mean, you could tell when sentences were spliced, you know, who the hell knows what she actually said. And it was all thrown together. She never said she couldn't drive. She didn't say that. Okay. But people are like, she says she couldn't drive. And, and okay. And then there's the, the Jewish aspect of it, right. Which is how do I feel Judaism was presented and everyone's reaction to that, which is, has been for the most part, a big boomerang, right? Which is like, oh no, we're so happy. So, <laughs> so this is, a, I have a lot to say, but overall, I think when you're talking about this, you have to, what am I talking about? Am I talking about Julia? Am I talking about the show? Am I talking about Judaism? And unfortunately it all gets thrown together and you're not really having a conversation. I do think that we need to make a distinction and recognize that we don't know to what extent how much Netflix distorted where the hearts may have been coming from, right? We can only deal with what was on the screen and perhaps what she's presented in interviews or something like that. I fully acknowledge that Netflix may be the culprit here much more than anything coming out of this family. It's a fair point. Tali, how about you? What were your impressions? Well, everyone kind of started out with a confessional about whether they watched, how much they watched. (laughs) I can think of nothing more entertaining than sitting and watching this show with like, lots of Ben and Jerry's <laughs> while we're watching it. <laughs> like two big sins right now. Actually, I flipped through the last few episodes this morning in, in preparation because I had watched, I had been, I have been watching it, but I didn't get through. And I'm glad that I flipped through certain scenes and especially the last scene um, that you referred to Shoshana. I think that more important than the show itself are the reactions to this show which is really almost a cultural sociological phenomenon within itself is the um, social media explosion, uh, the YouTubes that are coming out with people's reactions and their opinions. I think that also there's something about the show itself that really kind of embodies the idea of complexity. You know, we're, we're used to our worlds being understandable. You know, we're not used to seeing a from guy and a, and a sleeveless. There's a long time before. I mean, we see that a lot here in Israel, but I remember first seeing and thinking, oh, that doesn't make sense. Now, of course, it makes more sense. But the idea of complexity, the idea that there is a spectrum of beliefs and opinions and practices and ways to be Jewish, ways to be religious. And some of those ways are spiritual And some of those ways are communal. I mean, we all know that there was a Pew study that showed that many, many people identify as Orthodox, even if they don't even believe in God. So not everything about being Orthodox or even following ritual is necessarily about belief. And I think that this show and the way that people have dealt in this show with identity, identity is a very big question. Um, Even that's what you, Anne, started out with. You know, she's not really, she, maybe some of the things are true, but they're true for Hasidish. They're not true for modern yeshivish. And the whole idea, like if we were doing a study, a population study, we would have to have very specific objective variables about which demographic is modern yeshivish and which is Hasidish and which is modern Orthodox and which is Ashkenazi and which is Sephardi. But that's not what this is. And what's fascinating about it is that the idea of identity and identity formation, I mean, we're seeing our own form his identity. You know, first he says, I want to be a black hatter. And a lot of the busyness, I want to say he just a lot of the dealing with issues has to do with um, who am I? What What is my identity? The other thing I want to say is that there's a lot here 
that has to do with how people react and how it triggers them. There are many, many people who have been triggered by this. There are people who hold Judaism and Yiddishkeit and practice so dear to them that they are personally attacked and hurt. And there are posts about people who, you know, on Tisha B'Av were mourning over the way that Julia presents their most precious commitment and ideals, and they're hurt by it. And there are also people who are extremely hurt reading people say, oh, she's a liar. This doesn't happen. It's not true. And it's happened to them. And they have had the experience of feeling oppressed. Now, people choose to live their lives, you know, in ways that make it worthwhile for them. And if it's not worthwhile for you, like you can maybe stand a little bit of oppression now and then if everything else is great for you. Right. So you integrate those things together. But if you don't have a good marriage and you, you know, you have other issues going on, why stay in a lifestyle that that especially if you don't have the beliefs, some people don't have the beliefs and they do stay. Some people have the beliefs and they still leave. So there's a lot of complexity. There's an exposure here. There's a lot of exposure. I think we have to acknowledge that Julia has literally bared her breasts. From what I hear about the show, that's a well-coined expression in this case. And and she's exposed a lot about herself and her family. I have a lot to say about her personality, but I think that we have to um, take into consideration that it is a reality show. A lot is exaggerated for the cameras. I, I do want to say one more thing that Shoshana, you had touched on about the end of the show. I love the idea of co-parenting and having, you know, divorces with integrity, with compassion, with friendship and seeing that. That's really my big thing. I love that. I love when people can get divorced and still be friends and, you know, have kind of like a family situation and still talk to each other. And we see this in that show. And I think that that was that sent a very positive message. And unfortunately, no one watched to the end. In terms of what Anne said a moment ago, I know it's sort of a side point, but I, I do want to say that having not watched it, and I do have to address that too, because Shoshana, you mentioned that it goes actually against my own my own principles. I never go into an interview or a discussion without having read the book or seen the series or whatever else. So I will explain that at some point. But in terms of what you said, Anne, and what Shoshana also mentioned, what Holly, what you're all mentioning, that this is a reality show, that this is not the real Julia Hart. As far as I'm concerned, with any reality show, a viewer has to be advised, and frankly, the person who's being filmed has to also be advised, that we're not talking about the real human being because anyone who thinks that this is actually the real human being, as that person actually is or that family actually is, that's a fool's errand. This is not reality. Reality TV is a misnomer. It is not scripted per se, but it's very carefully edited. It's very carefully directed. People are told, obviously, what to emphasize. So as far as I'm concerned, when people talk about Julia Hart and they're talking about this show, I don't think, maybe someone has something else in mind, I wouldn't be talking about Julia Hart, the person who actually exists in the real world. I'm talking about Julia Hart, the semi-fictional, semi-real character on TV who's being presented. Because once you start saying who's the real person, who's the fake person, then there's nothing to talk about anymore because we have no idea. We can only take what has been presented to us. I think Anne's comment about not liking the fashion might be the most important takeaway I've heard so far. It reminds me a little bit of something which Jerry Seinfeld once said on uh, on Seinfeld. His The episode is actually the yada, yada, yada episode where his dentist friend converted to Judaism, and he's, convert, he's convinced that he converted for the joke, so he can now tell Jewish jokes. So he goes to the priest, this guy's former priest in his confessional, and he tells him this, and the priest said, does that offend you as a Jewish person? He goes, no, it offends me as a comedian. Perhaps in that vein, we can argue that this show is not so much an offense against Judaism as it's an offense against good taste. Anyway, Shoshana, I want to mention something which you have said to me personally. You've said it online as well on Facebook. You expressed it to me in a private chat like this, and you gave me permission to report what you said, that men should effectively shut up about this. Now, at the time, you said this in a heated discussion. It was a discussion with the four of us. And I would like you to tell me and tell all of us, what do you mean that men should keep their mouths shut? Yes. In this chat of the four of us, when we were talking about this, and I had been reading post after post from men pontificating about the show and Julia and how Judaism isn't really oppressive and how it's just not true that women are being raised. And it's just not true that, that men don't give gets because in 99.99% of, of divorces, it's amicable and men give the get right away. And in 0.0001, the guy also doesn't know how to do math, that the get is refused. And even then it's given. And at that moment, I was so sick and tired 
of hearing men telling us about our experience of Judaism because they don't experience these things. Moreover, they're lying or they're completely talking from a bubble and a position from which they should not be speaking. So at that moment on the chat, I said, in all honesty, I just wish they'd shut up. And it's true. It's true. Now, speaking out of passion um, and in a safe space, I think is okay to say that at that moment. But if I'm going to say, what do you mean by that, Shoshana? I'm happy to answer. What I mean is this. There are real issues in Judaism, as you know, we speak about all the time. Okay, it's called the Orthodox Conundrum. We're Hashim. You guys are intimate Judaism. That's what we talk about. I feel that if men are going to be part of a conversation about a woman's experience in Judaism, that they should be listening a lot more than they're speaking, and they should offer to be part of the solution, as opposed to telling us that what we're experiencing or what Julia experienced, the woman, again, nobody watched through, but she spoke about feeling suicidal. I'm sorry, Anne and Tali did, I'm sorry, but the people who are pontificating specifically did not, okay? And that's what makes me angry. So um, they're speaking, having watched one episode or two episodes, they didn't get to the point where she spoke about, I had to leave or I was going to kill myself. I Googled how to kill myself so that my kids wouldn't, wouldn't be affected. I thought of starving myself would be the easiest way. And for, for, for them to be talking about the things that they didn't experience, and you can say she's in Muncie, why did she feel that way? You know what? She also took a very particular role in raising her siblings from a very young age. So she was responsible for a lot of other people before she was able to develop who she was, okay? Then eventually she decides, I, I wanna take care of myself. She's choking. She feels she can't get out. She feels she can't loosen restrictions because it's either all or nothing. And they speak about that in the show, all or nothing. So my point about men speaking is you don't experience it. And it bothers me tremendously as a person, as a woman, as an activist, for men to be out there saying, this isn't true when really, but like, and the women are taking up this conversation. They're posting all over the place. I just kind of feel like I wouldn't put myself in a, in, a, in a conversation where I didn't have the experience. So I don't understand people who do that. And that's a fair thing to say. But here's my question. And before we actually, you know, something before I get to my question, I want to say that in that chat, I am not the person who said the point. Oh, one percent of men. You're not talking about me. You're mentioning you're referring to somebody else. Just I'm going to uh, at least defend myself in yeah. that sense. And beyond <laughs> that, I also made no comments because I agree with you. If you don't watch it, you can't comment about the series. And I'm not commenting about the series. I'm not. I'm not commenting about Julia Hart, the real person, or Julia Hart, the fictional character that we watch on the screen. So in that sense, I'm not pretending, oh, I didn't see it, but I can say what's going on in her life. This is my question, Shoshana. I absolutely agree that if it comes to judging that character, fictional or real, and talking about what she actually is thinking her actual lived experience and saying her lived experience is not true. It is a lie. That is absurd. No one can say that. It doesn't mean we have to accept it either, by the way, because she has her own subjective reality. But for us to say she is wrong, meaning her experience was not that, is absolutely unfair. But on the other hand, why can't I say, just as an example, I hear what she's saying. I feel bad that she has that lived experience. That is not the Judaism that I teach. That is not the Judaism that I espouse. It's not the Judaism that I was taught. I'm not trying to say that her reality isn't or that no one has that Judaism, but I believe there is a different kind of Judaism within the Orthodox world, which does exist. Is it really fundamentally not acceptable for a man to say that as well? That's my first question. Well, why are you centering yourself in that conversation? Why are you saying that's not what I teach? That's not what I know. That's not what I would espouse. Because if the whole problem is people telling Julia what she thinks, the other side is I have to talk about what I think. But you're saying that's not fair. I'm not allowed to say what I think because I don't know what she's thinking. As long as I say I can't judge her and I can't judge all women, I can't judge women at all. Of course not. That's not my place at all. I hope I don't judge anybody. But I can talk about my lived experience being different. Why can't a man say that? It doesn't mean he's saying that women don't have serious reservations, serious problems. He's not denying those problems exist. But it is different for it to say you can't say anything at all. I don't see where that comes from. And I want to make another point as well. Why is gender the separating line? For example, you just mentioned a whole lot that went in, on in Julia's life, such as being a mother-type figure to her siblings from a young age, such as the fact that she was born in the Soviet Union, as I understand it. There are all sorts of things that went on in her life, which is not my experience, and it's not your experience either. It's uniquely her own. Why do we decide that Gender is the thing. Women can talk about this, but men can't. Why can't we say, if you're not born in the Soviet Union, you also can't talk about this? That's my question about the dividing line as well. So first I'll ask Shoshana, then I know Tali had something else she wanted to say. Sure. 
if you watch the show, you'd understand why she left. She felt oppressed. She felt she couldn't be herself. She felt she couldn't express herself. She felt she didn't have value in and of herself as a woman that all of her olam haba, which by the way is totally taught, we earn our uh, reward in the next world from what our men do. My husband and my children, my sons, excuse me, my daughters aren't, my sons, learning is how I get olam haba when they're taught in these schools, okay? So it, she didn't say because I was born in the Soviet Union, I left Judaism. She didn't say because I... I don't know what, taught in Chumash and I didn't believe it anymore, I left. She specifically spoke about the things that you will never experience, Scott. No man will ever experience those things. Well, look, I think that we're talking about a conflict, basically. It's like, let's just take Julia as a representative, although there's so many Julias out there. Um, but let's just take Julia as a representative of somebody who decides to um, break with the system and people have a hard time looking at breakups. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we're looking at here is the is the relationship, relationship of Julia with her children, relationships within Judaism, and the relationships of the people with Judaism who are reacting and responding and getting caught up in facts and in defensive and reactive ways of arguing. And as a therapist, I know, and I say this all the time to the couples who are in my office who are trying to prove who's right. And I say, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be married? Because, you know, you can keep up with who's right and who's wrong. But the facts don't matter. Because what's true for that person is true for that person. And so what I teach people to do is try to express yourself in terms of your feeling. And Shoshana was able to connect with empathy to Julia's way of talking about how she was feeling. But once people begin talking about whether it's true or not that this happens or it doesn't happen. And also the idea of how can you as a man have empathy for an experience? Well, I think you can. I mean, I actually think that being a man doesn't necessarily prevent you from being able to listen, to mirror, to have empathy, but it does prevent you from saying, no, that's not true. That's not the experience of women. Women have a higher spiritual level and they don't sing in front of us because we're the ones who can't control ourselves or you know, all of the reframing that we've all heard all our lives. Okay, Anne? Um, Scott, I think it won't surprise you to hear that I share your take on this question to begin with. Perhaps we come from similar background, <laughs> same high school education, give or take. <laughs> but my question would be, there are plenty of women who kind of took ownership of a hashtag, my orthodox life, to replace the my unorthodox life. And many of them have been writing beautifully about their experience within orthodoxy, some of whom are more willing to acknowledge the challenges and difficulties, and some who are less. But their point is to say they feel erased, pardon me, by the Netflix Julia Hart representation of the orthodox experience. And I would say that some of those people would say to Julia Hart, don't tell me that my experience of beauty and wonder within orthodoxy is not my real experience either. So I always have difficulty. I, I do ask the same question that you ask, Scott. Why is the gender line, the dividing line on most things? I do think that there are certain times where orthodoxy has a gender line divide. So sometimes no it question. does. You know, I, I think that especially when we talk about the synagogue, for example, you know, it's it's pretty, or there's certain messaging, you know, all of the Julia Hart messaging that Shoshana just quoted, I don't necessarily always buy it from the show, but I buy it from the real life people who indeed, including Julia Hart, who have left orthodoxy because some of this is troubling, much of it is troubling. I think that my concern is that we need to focus on the individual here and be less quick I'm sorry, Shoshana, I'm not saying that you're you, that you're quick here, but to say this is a women-men divide. There are many women who are very happy in orthodoxy, including in much more oppressive conditions than I personally would ever want to live under, and vice versa, right? There are people who would think that the way I live my life is oppressive to them. So I feel like it's not just women-men. There are plenty of men who have left orthodoxy because they found it oppressive in different ways. I think that the there's a personality thing. There's a, a lived reality thing. People have different experiences. Even people growing up in the same household have different experiences to which Julia's siblings have not left orthodoxy, at least 
the ones that we know about. So I, I feel like that's where I would say, let's take care that maybe nobody should talk about anybody else's experience and not just men not talk about women's and women and so on. Well, I just want to say that I, I'm very happy to be the foil here, but at the same time, if Scott, if she said, I could not handle having a full day off social media, I could not handle something else, you know, sukkis, lula, I don't know, something that you personally experienced, Vivakasha, talk about how you love being off social media for 25 hours or you love not eating pork. I don't care. My problem is that men come into the conversation and talk about the things that they are not experiencing and argue with facts and argue or turn to their wives and say, do you feel like a baby maker? And she's like, no, I don't. And it's like, what the hell is this? You're coming on just to refute, just to defend Judaism and not deal with the issues. You, Scott, are someone who deals with the issues. And obviously, if you want to have a conversation, I would love your input because you're the type of person who would look at this and say, okay, I don't get this or I don't really whatever, but how could we make it better? That's valid. That's great. That's not what the vast majority of men who are pontificating are doing. So it's not that you're a man, you're out. I would never <laughs> do that. But I'm saying it's, it's just a little bit grating. I understand what you mean, and I appreciate what you said. I don't want to pretend that I'm unusually enlightened because I don't feel that I am. I think we all have a lot to learn constantly, and hopefully we're all doing that. I would say that there is a difference, though, between saying I can't experience life as a woman, which is true, and saying I can't have empathy. And I would hope that on some level I can. As a very simple example, last night I was at the Kota with my wife and two of my daughters, my youngest two daughters, and I was really irritated because... There were lots of men on the men's side. At the same time, it was only in that plaza approximately one-fifth full. There was plenty of room for me to walk around and breathe and enjoy the scenery. Meanwhile, at the same time, my wife and two daughters went to the other side of the hotel where there were probably the same number of women, but because that part of the plaza is so small, they were completely tight. There was no logic to this, not to mention the fact that the men also have a very large indoor area as well. And I came out there and my wife wasn't bothered by it. She hadn't really noticed it. And I told her I was really ticked off. I said, this is ridiculous. Why is it that the mechitza is so far over when every single night, many, many women go to the Kotel? If the reality is women didn't go, maybe you could argue that's the reason why, but at least we could say, okay, it's based on numbers. But this is not based on numbers. This is based on someone stuck it there and no one would dare move it. And I was the one, if I can say so, who had the empathy and my wife didn't. She's like, oh, you're right. She hadn't thought about that. So I think there's a difference between saying my lived experience as a woman, which I can't say, versus as a man, I can empathize with people who are upset about the situation. I can see it even if perhaps some of them don't see it themselves. I think that is a fair thing to say. Tali, did you want to say something before we move on to the next topic? Well, first of all, I, I, I do want to just acknowledge what you just said, Scott. I mean, I think that people don't want men to defend and to um, devalue the experience. And they do want to be understood and validated. Um, I don't think we can expect of meant to necessarily change the reality. Um, but even being able to say, you know, this isn't okay. Um, and I'm noticing, I'm seeing through the eyes of what it must be like for you to be pushed to the side like that, to be literally pushed to the side, which is not necessarily an unusual experience in public prayer spaces, even in shuls to some extent. So I appreciate that. Again, when we talk about whether men have a right to weigh in, and my belief is that everybody has a right to weigh in, I mean, I think that we can all agree that this has provoked a great deal of thought and feeling and impressions and opinion, and um, people do need a way to express themselves, whether they're men or women. Um, I do want to say that in addition to social media, I'm on some therapy listservs, orthodox therapy listservs where this has been brought up. And I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by some of the men who were able to, at the same time, express their sadness, their grief, their shock, their concern, but also as therapists, maybe, but also as men, be able to say, wow, there must be an experience here that we need to understand more about. And I think that if we can take home the message that maybe we can use this opportunity to reflect. I mean, I think that the my orthodox life certainly had a role, but there is something that felt defensive about it. 
and, you know, kind of like meeting. And it's again, I think it's a very normal reaction. Like you want to be able to say world, you know, this has gone out to the world. So hello world, please don't think this way. I'm an Orthodox woman and I'm a doctor and I'm a lawyer and I'm not oppressed. And, and here's my picture, which by the way, wouldn't necessarily appear in mainstream Orthodox venues, but that's another issue. So it makes sense that, you know, being able to demonstrate one's lack of feeling oppressed, but yet I also think it's an opportunity for us to sit back and say, okay, what what's happening here? You know, and I also don't think it's sufficient to say, come on, this doesn't happen in the mainstream Orthodox society, maybe in Hasidic societies. Huh? Well, what about Hasidic societies? Like, so we're not, we shouldn't talk about that. We shouldn't be concerned about that. I mean, unorthodox, which we did a panel on, doesn't seem like it had, it seemed like there was a lot of talking there too, but not as much as this. And I think because this hits home because it's so mainstream, whereas unorthodox felt for many orthodox people, you know, very, they're, they're not so familiar with Williamsburg and what life is like. I would assume that for many people who are in the orthodox world, who are greatly offended and perhaps defensive about this show, the difference between this and unorthodox is that I'm guessing that many people are afraid that the unnuanced viewer, maybe perhaps non-Jews watching, will just assume that the orthodox life, which is the contrast of the my unorthodox life, is uniform. It's a single thing. They don't understand the distinctions between Haredi, ultra-orthodox, Hasidish, modern orthodox, Datilumi. These aren't even presented in the outside world. These are distinctions that we know from within. It's not something which people will understand. And therefore saying that this is an experience that some people might have, but it is not the experience that everybody has. It's probably they feel a necessity to actually say that. The problem is, Scott, that what she's talking about, and she tries, by the way, throughout the series, she tries to say, my problem is with fundamentalism, not with Judaism and not with religion itself. Any fundamentalism is wrong. And she repeats this repeatedly. She repeats it repeatedly throughout the series. And she says, when you, in Judaism, the woman is secondary. What do, she says to her son, what do you say every morning? And he says, for, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. It's really nice to be able to like, to say, oh, it's just the Hasidim. But everything she talks about, or not everything, she talks about driving, which is not true. She talks about other things, which is, you know, not true in modern Orthodox or Yeshivish. But there are certain things that are throughout our religion that we take issue with that is there. It's there. And if you look at it and you feel it and you feel it in here, then you can't just blow it off by saying it's just the Hasidism or, or it's because you're, you're on a pedestal. I mean, come on. Come on. We have to be honest. But my issue was that she called my life, which I don't relate to as fundamentalist in the same way that she calls it problematic, as a modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox, whatever you want to call it, taking halacha seriously and living in the modern world, she calls that fun fundamentalism also. And the way she relates, and this we haven't touched at all, and it's maybe not fair because it's not about Orthodoxy, but the way she relates to how she's presenting everything is, is to paint her view as, you know, it's it has to be her take or the highway type of thing. And it's a different angle, right? The question of her interpersonal relationships and how she parents and so on, how she relates to her employee who's her friend, all of these things are part of the series and not really part of our discussion about orthodoxy. But the cavalier way in which she pans fundamentalism as if that's not panning the rest of it, meaning Torah is fine, it's fundamentalism that is bad, I think is a little bit disingenuous on her part or Netflix's part or whatever, that the presentation of it pans the way we live, which is, oh, she's she's not going to ever say don't to keep Shabbos. She's not going to say ever not to keep kosher. But she's so glad when her son is kind of emerging from the cloister, etc. Like, I understand that she has concerns as a parent that she wants her children to follow in her footsteps. I think a lot of parents, most parents do including her footsteps away from Jewish observance. But her steps away from Jewish observance go much farther than leaving an extreme right-wing orthodoxy to paint it all with the same brush. And that's actually a great segue to a different topic that I want to speak about. And I'll ask Tali to comment on it first. I would like to first read a post by someone named Olivia Friedman. She's a high school teacher. And she wrote the following on Facebook. She gave me permission to read it. It's entitled Boundaries or Lack Thereof in My Unorthodox Life. One of the most troubling aspects of my unorthodox life has to do with boundaries or the lack thereof. 
Julia Hart doesn't respect them, and it is part of why the parenting she performs in the show is so problematic. Below are several examples of Julia lacking boundaries. One, Julia frequently asks her children to tell her about their sexual escapades or offers to share her own. She does this in the name of promoting a sex-positive culture. That's not what this is. It's a blurring of boundaries that can be very confusing because it refuses to acknowledge the power dynamic between her and her children. She is their mother, and more than that, she employs them. Two, Julia's unedited memoir contains private details about Batsheva and Binyamin's marital struggles. In this case, the children do make the point that this is not okay. There are also moments depicting Shlomo's experiences that he is not okay with having shared. Three, Julia invites Robert to come over to her house and then simply springs a Shadchan matchmaker on him after he explicitly told her he did not want to date. She is not willing to believe that his no means no. Four, Julia's son Aaron tells her that he has created a boundary for himself where he does not want to talk to girls, watch TV, or listen to non-Jewish music. Julia tells him she doesn't agree with this and calls it ludicrous, which is her right as a parent. But then she manipulates him into a situation where he is forced to interact with the girlfriend he had broken up with, Dahlia. She calls Dahlia's mom and arranges for Dahlia and her friend, Ilana, to be dropped off at a local eatery at the same time that she will bring Aaron and his friend there, then forces them to interact. She pretends all the while that she had nothing to do with this happening. Five, Julia tells Robert to join her for a black tie affair aboard a yacht. Then it turns out that she's actually holding a funeral for his insecurities, which, by the way, not watching reality TV, this is Scott speaking, not her. That's the most reality TV thing I can even imagine in my life, but whatever. While in the end, he does appreciate the gesture. It is yet another situation where she is okay with lying and manipulating others to get what she wants. And finally, six. In the last scene, Julia and her ex-husband, Yosef, plan to surprise the family with his new love interest, Aliza. Julia invites everyone to dinner without telling them she has also invited Aliza then springs her upon them. While in this case she does not outright lie, it is once again a manipulation of others that doesn't allow them the time to process or get ready for what could be a challenging meeting. All of this makes for exciting TV, but is very poor parenting. As women, if we want people to believe that no means no, then we need to advocate for all no's being heard as no. As parents, we need to respect our children's right to keep aspects of their life private and not to manipulate them into situations they don't want to be in. And as friends, it's wrong to push our friends into situations they don't want to be in and have explicitly said they don't want to be in because we know better and we know actually they do want to date. In short, the problems with my unorthodox life are much more robust than some people not liking Julia's take on religion. Okay, Tali, do you have any comments about that particular post or the ideas that she raises? Yeah, I think um, there are several scenes, as she said, that demonstrate Julia's need to manipulate situations or be in control of situations. I, I, I want to just start with a disclaimer. I don't feel comfortable providing a psychological analysis of somebody who hasn't been in my office. And if that person was in my office, I wouldn't be doing it. But on the other hand, she put herself out there. And so people who do put themselves out, out there do kind of like waive their privacy rights in that sense. So, I mean, there are people that would say, how dare you say that Trump is a narcissist um, because he wasn't in your office, you shouldn't be diagnosing. But, you know, there are some things that are pretty obvious. So You're diagnosing the reality show character, not the human being. That's what I would say. Okay, so I would diagnose or analyze or whatever. I would speak about her like I would speak about anybody in terms of how we behave in our lives um, has a lot to do with how we developed and what are our own experiences and what are our wounds and what are our attachment experiences and what are our personal traumas and what were the boundaries that were presented to her and how did she have to cope and adapt in her life. But what I understand is that she definitely felt somewhat abandoned by her parents and that she was a parentified child who had to raise uh, her own siblings, in which case she had to take on a great deal of responsibility and she did not get her needs met. She obviously um, coped in her life by trying to take control. And maybe at some point that was with food. And certainly now in her quote unquote new life, um, she does it. She does it with her children. Some of it may really be an overreaction or an overreach. You know, there are some parenting scenes with Julia that are very um, cringeworthy in terms of her inability to separate her own experience from 
those of her children. And clearly she's very attached to the outcome of her children. The same way that many parents who are you know, very religious are attached to the outcome, but certainly we wanna be able to create a healthy developmental environment with the right amount of provision of uh, respect and non-invasiveness into, into the child's um, experience in the child's life. So I agree that there are some definite boundary issues and I think that we need to be able to stay curious and understand why. The other thing I want to say is that she's, you know, she's very likely a work in progress. You know, she's on a path. And I actually would have been very curious to see the years um, from when she left until she became this mega CEO and this amazingly powerful woman who, by the way, seems to have some very strong opinions and also some positive influences on how models are objectified. And she seems to have some very strong ideas uh, that are influential in the you know, Western culture. That's not unlike people who have that sort of a grandiose personality. So I think that not being able to identify or respect boundaries, that's probably something that was part of her experience. And that's something that is certainly perpetuated at least as we see it, you know, from our side of the camera lens. I also, there's a lot of cringe in the show. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even get to talk about any of this stuff because I'm so busy dealing with everything else. Not that I really need to talk about it because it's a television show, whatever. But, but I would just briefly respond and say, obviously, I found that a lot of the things that she did was really overstepping, really overreaching and not very tolerant. You know, we want tolerance. We ask for understanding uh, of women's, of anyone's experiences, really, um, anyone's pain, um, anyone's journey. And I feel that she didn't really, or at least as it was depicted, did not give that to her own children. Um, and she's really lucky, or, or at least she does something really, really good to compensate for that, that they love her so much that they still, despite what she does, still, I mean, they love her you know, again, depicted, blah, 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 but they stick with her. They, despite what she's done, despite how she embarrasses them, they stick with her. And so there's a, there's a lot more I'm not seeing, which makes it a little bit frustrating to talk about, but I agree that in general, those things were overstepping and uncomfortable and not the best way to go. So my reaction overall, right? You initially asked about my initial reaction. My reaction overall is that there's a large piece of this story that remains unknown. And not just because it's a reality show, meaning I don't know if it's kept out of the public eye because she wants it that way or because it it will show up in the tell-all memoir that's supposed to be out, I think, next spring. Meaning, I, I don't know, but I felt that a lot of her journey is not represented here, and I would like to know it. In my most voyeur hat, my most yenta hat, that's the part of the story that I think was missing. As Tali said, you know, you'd, you'd like to have known the seven years up until this show. I do want to say that a lot of the people I know who are Orthodox, who identify as Orthodox, and who would object to her characterization of Orthodoxy have been very vocal about her presentation of Orthodoxy being the least disturbing aspect of what happens on this show. That the cringe element, as you call it, Shoshana, in terms of her parenting and in terms of her bullying is, I think, more troubling for many people. We know that there are people who leave, leave the Orthodox world. That is not a newsflash. Watching the interpersonal relations, the family relationship, especially with the young son, is, I think, hard to watch for many of us. And the one other thing I would say is that, you know, this is a woman who came up in a world that she calls fundamentalist and has in her experience or her presentation of her experience, a lot of stricture and rigidity. And I do not think that she divested herself of that approach. She chose different rigidities. Yeah, I agree with you. I also wanna say that what was hard for me watching the show is that there is clearly a depth, but the show is, a, is like a very shallow reality TV show. And it's hard for me to see it portrayed on this very shallow level um, there was an episode where she helps a young woman from a Haredi home, ultra-Orthodox home, who comes to her to get advice. And she gives her advice by having her do a makeover with a plunging ne neckline and tight jeans and explains to her how to use a vibrator. And that's her 
kind of way to help her segue into the modern world. And even her children say to her, you know, she's coming to you for advice about how to make it in the world. And you're giving her a makeover and giving her a vibrator. Like, what are you doing here? And my feeling in that episode was, you know, the girl said to her something like, I started having sex at age 16. And she said, oh, great. Um, Now, in my experience working with young women and men who are questioning their backgrounds and who are, I don't like to say going off the derrick, I hate that. So who are transitioning identities or whatever, their early sexual experiences frequently are coercive. They're not necessarily planned with knowledge or education or birth control or anything like that. So when you're Hasidish or you're Haredi and you say, I had sex at 16, it's really important to be here. I mean, I know that she's not a therapist and she would have no way to know, but folks, let's use some curiosity. Let's ask questions. Oh, really at 16, what was that for you? How was it for you? Did you like it? Did you want it? I mean, just a few, and again, I know it's a reality TV show and, 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 you know, we're dealing with a very superficial treatment, but we're dealing with superficial treatment of actual issues that we can use to say, let's learn something from this and let's talk about this and let's talk about how we react to people who are coming in with their experiences and maybe be less judgmental and be less like, oh, that's great or, oh, that's terrible, but ask more, well, what was that like? You know, what's the background here? And um, not just assume things in a very black and white way. Tali, can I ask you a question about a specific scene? My wife told me, she watched the first episode and she said there's a certain point where Binyamin is upset that Batsheva is wearing pants because even though they are transitioning to a less religious lifestyle, I guess that's the way to put it, at the same time, he's not quite ready. And he's saying, I wish we could do this together. Tell me if I'm misinterpreting or not presenting this properly. But effectively, he's not happy that she's there so quickly. He needs a little more time to process it. And as I understand it, the family then has a powwow where they all criticize Binyamin to Batsheva, telling her how bad he's being and how inappropriate he's being, etc. Let's forget about the specific issue about pants. I, I don't care about that. But what I do care about is the fact that an entire family is telling the wife, who's happily married as far as anyone knows to her husband, that he's bad for her and he's not doing appropriate things for her when they might disagree. There's a difference between saying and criticizing him strongly for a particular action and using the kind of tone that I understood they used. What do you think about that? Look, I, again, we really don't know very much about the dynamics because everything is presented so superficially. But I would say that it was kind of symbolic of how there is a basic understanding about patriarchy that can cut across all sectors. You know, my husband doesn't let, my husband doesn't like, and here they are in this Tribeca penthouse, and she's kind of saying, well, my husband isn't comfortable yet with my jeans. Sometimes we like to say, you know, my husband doesn't let or we, it's also about, you know, do we want to let the system victimize us? Or do we want to take accountability? And it's kind of funny to use these opportunities to kind of act out your position in the hierarchy. Don't fall off your chair. I found Benjamin and Yosef, the ex-husband to be the most I don't know the right word uh, to use specifically, but I really- The most male, the most male characters. Well, yes, but also (laughs) actually the most sympathetic for me. I felt that both of them were really trying, at least the way they were portrayed, which I actually really appreciate Netflix, not making them oppressive patriarchal characters. Um, Because when you are married, Everything is a conversation, or at least in my marriage, I try to, we try to make it a conversation. We, we want to, res- we do respect each other's desires, wants, whatever's, you know, like my husband does not tell me how to dress or whatever, but I would not take off my head covering without having a conversation with him about it. I wouldn't pe- put on jeans without talking to him about it. I mean, we are married and we have a relationship and I don't feel oppressed to ask him how he feels about it and to express how I feel about it, I I don't think it's fair, actually, to pit a husband and a wife. I think that, especially the 20-year-old, Miriam, she actually went really far and said to Bacheva, I don't think he's good for you. Just because he, at least what we could see, okay, always that caveat, from what we could see, 
because he was not ready for her to wear jeans. And I was just like, whoa. And Bacheva did a really good job at saying, I'm in a long-term relationship. This is how relationships work. We are together. We are working through it together. And I don't appreciate you saying that about my husband and my, my marriage. So I actually thought that was something that got right about portraying his concern, her wanting to be both herself and in a committed relationship where his opinion mattered. I think if anything here, Binyamin has been the one who has had to conform very much to a very, very strong uh, family and a very strong expectation. I don't, I don't think for a minute we think that Bacheva is oppressed by Binyamin. If anything, it might be a little bit the other way around. As you said, Shoshana, I hope that any of these major decisions about religious life, whether it's taking off a head covering or a man deciding he doesn't want to go to Minion anymore, I would think that it would be a conversation because this is their collective religious identity. And while one person has a greater say because that's the person who must continue doing that action which that person wants to stop, I would hope that in a healthy marriage, they would discuss it if the other person does care about it. It would be at least a conversation or at least there'd be a good explanation rather than I'm going to do whatever I want and you can't tell me what to do. And that's the end of the conversation there. Um, the only comment I would make is that I actually, it's about it being a show, is that, that I heard analysis. I don't know if it was with knowledge or without that that conversation surely took place, but not in the scheme of the time frame of the show, that it must have taken place years ago. And, and then it was scripted to put it in this conflict, pitting one against the other and so on. And I think that if anything, it might be the most um, paradigmatic example of how to avoid thinking about this as real. Yes, it felt very scripted. I'm not saying the conversation wasn't real. I'm just saying that the timing of it and the presentation of it, I don't think it happened in that way. And maybe that, maybe that family against them never really happened. We're getting close to the end of the podcast. And I'll quickly say why I didn't watch the show, because I've been alluding to that for a while. And then I'll ask each of you to give a little wrap up your takeaways from the show, what you thought about it, just something to leave us with at the end. The reason I didn't watch it is actually for a religious reason. I didn't particularly want to watch it anyway. My brother, Gabe Kahn, who is the editor of the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent, sent me a review of the show before it actually had aired on Netflix. His reviewer had written it. His reviewer is, as I understand it, not religious. He was not coming from the perspective that he was offended as an Orthodox Jew because he's not an Orthodox Jew. He was offended as a TV reviewer, as a TV critic, saying this is vacuous, it's vapid, it's not a good show. So I actually had no interest initially in watching it. But all the discussion that's taking place about the show... Maybe have second thoughts. Maybe I should watch it. In fact, in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook, we had a big conversation about it, many, many comments. So I started wondering, maybe I should watch it. My wife, Eliza, watched the first episode, and I asked her afterwards about the tznut of the show. Tznut being defined broadly as modesty, the modesty of the show. And she described it the way that many people have described it so far, that it is not a particularly tznua show. And I said, you know what? I don't think this is halakhically proper for me to watch. In Jewish law, it is considered improper for a man to watch TV shows or movies which are not sanua, which are fundamentally, doesn't have to be pornographic, but in which women are dressed in very skimpy outfits, etc. And I believe that unfortunately, in my mind, in the modern Orthodox world, this is largely ignored. It's become one of those prohibitions which people pretend isn't on the books, but it is. Now, whether or not that applies to this show is not my point. Once again, I'll say it again. I did not watch it. So therefore, it could be I'm completely off base. But that was my choice. I try not to watch things I don't think that Halacha would want me to watch. And you can all say that I'm wrong, and that's fine. But this is what I'm feeling comfortable with. And that is actually the reason I, I chose, in the end, not to watch it. I, I actually was, at some point along the way, I... I, you know, I missed the opportunity when I was talking, but there was a point that I wanted to say that I think that there are many of the men who I agree with Shoshana, they should not be pontificating, but it's not so clear to me that they should be watching the show in terms of snoots either, because the skirts are as skimpy as can possibly be. The shorts are as skimpy as can possibly be. The amount of cleavage, you'll forgive me, it's just not, I don't think it crosses those lines into anything pornographic, but I also do not think that it is... Um, you know, your usual primetime fair. I, I don't watch primetime fair, so I may be wrong. And things may have devolved to this. That's not the topic today, but I felt I at least owed an explanation about why I didn't do my normal preparation before the interview. I want to hear your various takeaways. Shoshana, can we start with you? 
Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts and I haven't actually put all of my own thoughts together yet because I've been so, A, I wanted to watch the whole thing. B, so many other people have been commenting and I've actually shared a number of incredible posts uh, written by women who talk about their love of orthodoxy, Judaism, their life, and are honest about the real issues that we face. And I think that the only way you can really have this conversation is by doing that. I don't want to engage with anyone who is you know, either calling her a liar or saying it's not true, or it, it's just, ain't nobody got time for that on the one hand. And I don't, ain't nobody got the nerves for that. Okay. I can't handle it. It really, really agitates me. I don't know if you could tell. But oh, no. I think that any- I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm torn. I'm torn between wanting it to go away and using it as an opportunity to really talk about the issues on both sides, because it has opened up so many people to talking about Orthodox life. And in the end, what I'd like to do, I, I try to end on a hot positive note. What I'd like to do is use this as an opportunity to properly have conversations about Orthodox life for the good, for the bad, without bashing anyone specifically, with having men part of the conversation and part of the solution, but not making it about their take. Okay, that I, I would like to use this as a good opportunity for us in general in the Orthodox world to move forward. How's that? I think that's very fair. Tali, how about you? Look, I don't have any um, grandiose takeaways. You know, Besach HaKol, this is a reality show, and it's a pretty shallow one at that. It's about societies. It's about cultures. Even for us sitting in Israel, the culture of, you know, there's so much conversation about handbags. And, you know, we throw things into a plastic bag and just leave the house. There were all these conversations about these pocketbooks that are super designer expensive, like probably more than who knows, I mean, how much we would spend on groceries for a month. And it's a culture that most of us here in Israel are not are not that used to. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see the house in the Hamptons and the swimming pool. And I was getting a little, you know, low mode there, low tachmodi. <laughs> <laughs> this week's Parsha. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, wow, look at that life. It's totally foreign to me. So my experience about that part of her life, of their life is probably very similar to the experience of people who are watching the Orthodox part who aren't. And, you know, we coming from the cultural milieu of orthodoxy are very interested. So in a big way, there's sameness. And in a big way, there's otherness. And I think that the world at large is really having to deal with plurality, with intersectionality, with differences. I mean, the whole world is talking about this and dealing with this. We have to be able to look at other with curiosity, have conversations, try to understand the experience because we're not all the same. And in some ways we are the same, but in most ways, everyone has their own narrative, their own experience. And, you know, we're watching people go through journeys of change. And like Shoshana said, it, it's not about your take. It's really about what we can learn from each other, what we can learn about our system and our society. And at the end of the day, no system is perfect. No, every system has flaws. We're not always going to be happy and satisfied all the time. We're not always going to feel non-oppressed all the time because the fact is, is that we don't really get full autonomy in our lives. We don't, we, you know, we can choose to leave it if we want. Any one of us can choose to leave it. And we can also choose to stay and complain if we want. But at the end of the day, it's our identity. And changing your identity is a very, very complex and difficult thing to do. There are people who have left the community, and I'm not talking about Julia Hart, but I have been following some people, for example, Abby Stein, who I have been following, who is so articulate, so has so much to say. She's a Hasidish woman who's transgender, and she still is very active in Jewish life, and she speaks so intelligently. And um, I think that we can learn a lot from people who have made transitional journeys, whether it's gender, whether it's religion, whether it's other parts of their identity. Okay, Anne? I think when I first heard about the show, I was in, you know, a little bit intrigued and I didn't really care that much, but I was very interested in people's reactions to it. I was very interested in, besides the fact checking and things like that, the, the phenomenon of Orthodox women to come out and say my Orthodox, hashtag my Orthodox life the phenomenon of people who have left orthodoxy, some of whom found 
the issues to be very resonant and perhaps triggering, and some people who found it to be very off-putting because of the way the reality show is put together and so on. I found the reactions in the Orthodox world to be very interesting, and that captured me much more than any interest I might have had in watching the show. At the same time, or rather afterwards, once I then watched the show, or perhaps just paying attention to this personality of Julia Hart, I find her, the personality of her, to be fascinating in my identity as an unabashed reader of fiction, right? Meaning I'm curious about her journey. I'm curious about what took her from being a beloved and admired Chumash teacher who I, you know, she's not old enough for her to have been my Chumash teacher, but I can picture myself as the high school kid who would have wanted to grow up to be her, right? So I'm curious. I, I, I don't know if I want to read this memoir because I think it might be a little bit too tell all for my tastes. But on the other hand, I would like to know the rest of the story that I feel is missing here. So the takeaway, my biggest takeaway is, you know, where's the rest of it, um, which is perhaps not fair because this is the amount that has been chosen to be shared at this time. And yet, as I say, this is, this is my curiosity and Yenta hat driving me to say, but what really pushed her to leave? I think it goes beyond anything that we've seen or heard to this point. I think there's more story here. And in the storytelling of it, I would like to know the rest of it. Okay, well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I thank the three of you for coming on and giving your opinions and expressing them so articulately. Tali Rosenbaum, Anne Gordon, and Shoshana Kitschaskal, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.